Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Coming at you clean and green and 9 by 9 on the dials, welcome to Drive-by Cinema, the COVID podcast where two people trapped in quarantine review a sci-fi movie a week and chart their ongoing deterioration. I'm your host, Rick, and this is the other host, Paul. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, this uh, wonderful podcast number 10, I think, in the series. Number 10. Double digits. Do you think this is a time to maybe call a call a halt and, and call a natural ending to our science fiction podcast reviews, Richard? What do you think? You're burnt out, aren't you, Paul? This <laughs> film has done it to you. Well, look at the Beatles. When did the Beatles form? The Beatles uh, formed in what, 1961, potentially? Maybe early. Yes. Yeah. 1959, I don't know. Well, they, they became a commercial concern in what, 62? I see. And by 1970, they were they were no more. So yes, I am burnt out. Uh, and Richard's intimated because of my low intelligence, which I'm not going to deny. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just... Whew. I I feel like we're almost scraping the bottle of the bottom of the barrel as far as it comes to quality sci-fi movies. I mean, we've got to wait until... There are two biggies coming later next year, this year, aren't they? Dune... Dune 2020 and the other big one that I can't remember what it is. This was my choice this week, and I'll own up to it. What was your choice, Richard, this week, to remind listeners and viewers? This week's choice was The Vast of Night. Vast of Night. I was considering trying to blame it all on you by suggesting this was your choice, and I was fairly confident I could front that and fool you. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the recordings will bear me out on that. Evidentially speaking. Did you give me a choice? I don't think you did, did you? I gave you no choice whatsoever. Uh, but what did happen, and what I can blame you for, yeah. is on the last episode, unusually, and this is out of character, you asked me what review scores this film got. And we both looked up and agreed that it got fairly decent reviews. Well, not just fairly decent, really rather remarkably good reviews, I would say. Above average in every respect. Yes. Above above even good films, you know. Like, I think on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, IMDb, there's an aggregator score on IMDb as well as of some sort. It's up there in the 4.5, at four, fours out of fives and 4.5 out of fives. Bottom line up front, Paul, can you figure out why people were reviewing this movie so highly? The Vast of Night... The Vast of Night. Uh, from 2019. Hmm. Presented first at the Sundance Film Festival, I think, or whatever it's called, the Flashdance Film Festival. Flashdance Film Festival. <laughs> <laughs> the directors have to shimmy on, you know, after Burning Man and do a, a quick a quick tap dance, and if it's good, they get funding. No, uh, The Vast of Night, 2019. Can I, can I eke out, is what you're asking, uh, any reason for why this movie should have received... Such welcoming reviews from the viewing public and also from, from professional reviewers also. Is that what you're asking me, Richard? That is what I'm asking you. And the short answer would be no, no, I can't. It is a mystery that we're going to have to delve into. I have to say, this this movie was really, really good in one respect. <laughs> Sorry. This movie was really good in one respect, in one respect alone, I think. And that was how quickly it sent me to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, it's a hallmark of all the best, uh, particularly movies for flights, long flights, I think. It is, but, you know, I, I was very virtuous and I was very diligent. I did rewind and rewatch each part that I, that I, that I slumbered 
during. Uh, and actually, on two occasions, fell asleep again during the same the same section. So and this is midday. So I don't know. I don't know what other people are seeing that I'm not seeing here, Richard. But I guess we'll get into that at some point. Well, our loyal listener, Alistair, has been having Hello, much the same experience with Sputnik. With Sputnik. I think he's made it through and he was reasonably impressed by it. But I think he had a few bites of the apple himself. Sputnik was our number, our number eight. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry to hear that, Alistair. Did we particularly recommend Sputnik? I know I didn't. I scored it 5.5. I think you scored it 7, didn't you, Richard? 6 or 7, I think, were your actual words. It's a very decent piece of sci-fi stuff, isn't it? It's like a Soviet-mandated science fiction horror movie, isn't it? You just This is what you go and see, rather than that decadent alien, say. You go and see Sputnik. Uh, we grappled a little bit for a meaning behind Sputnik. Does Alistair have one to suggest? Well, no, I don't know if Alistair did, but I was thinking maybe uh, that what it is, it's it's a rejection of communism, the yes. Soviet-era communism, isn't mm. it, In from the body politic. It's a physical um, a manifestation of Richard, that. I think I said that in the podcast. Did you? Yeah. Uh, well, I probably edited it out because it's... No, no, I think it's... Oh, oh maybe not. Uh, I don't know. I think I did say that or something similar, that he was a hero... And the most heroic thing for, 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 for Soviets to admit was that their system didn't work. But yes, I think even, you put it even better. It's, it's a rejection of communism from the body politic. It's something alien to, to, the, to the Soviet psyche, to the, to the Russian psyche. So Russian so. psyche, yeah. Should I say? Yes. I do also have a sort of correction from Alistair. He wanted me to point out that he is not, N-O-T, not a fan of the beyond. He's not a even fan Even though he has beyond. talked about setting up a Facebook page. It's more, he described it as a fascination, not uh, an appreciation. A moth before the light, so to speak, in a, in a death, dance of, in a dance of death. He's distancing himself from any association or <laughs> any suggestion that he might like it. <laughs> well, poor Alistair. Are, are the wolves at the door already? How do you like this movie? People with placards outside his front window. <laughs> At about this time, it is be- it's becoming a tradition that we have a musical sting and we launch into discussion of the movie at hand. The movie itself. So, yeah, coming up soon, in just a few seconds, Vast of Nights, 2019, here on Drive-By Cinema. Paul, you have... Information about this movie, I think, that I don't, because I you've do. looked at the Wikipedia page. I do, yeah. I, I looked at several sources, uh, the veritable, praiseworthy IMDb, uh, Wikipedia, and uh, some other stuff, some YouTube stuff that was discussing this movie. And also, strangely, I got diverted into a whole sequence of YouTube videos about how to make a ping pong ball bounce higher by dropping it in a cup of water. I don't know how <laughs> that happened, but it happened. It's fascinating. Uh, also, well, there's you, some physics going on there. There is. There? It's the same principle. If you, if you, if you like, you know, if you balance a, t- a ping pong ball on top of a, te- a tennis ball, a tennis ball proper, and drop, oh yes, it, the yeah. ping pong ball will bounce much higher. It's the same principle, water or tennis ball. Uh, quite a simple principle. But yes, let's get on to this movie, The Vast of Night. Quite a promising title, really, an ambitious title that speaks of speaks of grandiose cinematic gestures, does it not? From 2019. And, uh, yeah, what do you want to know about it, Richard? Quick fire round. Ask me anything, and I probably won't know the answer. Well, like, who's the director? Who's I, the I do I do know that. Okay. The director is Andrew Patterson. He is the director. He's also, strangely, the scriptwriter, but he decided to write under a pseudonym or pen name. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Maybe he gets twice the, the salary for that. But wait, wait, wait. He didn't just write under one pseudonym. He wrote as a writing team of two people. Yeah, he had two. Okay. He had two pseudonyms, which I thought was rather intriguing. Well, I'm starting now to feel that we shouldn't take the mickey out of this because it seems cruel, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, there could be some med- mental health issues involved here, I think. Look, okay, 2019, this movie was made, but it has a very strange feel that either you do or don't like. A uh, mid-80s kind of feel, we'll get on to later, possibly. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. First thing to say is a shoestring budget, and well done here. $700,000, no more, no less. Wow, okay. I mean, certainly, yeah, they're doing stuff with a tiny budget. That's to be lauded. I think we've said that about a couple of the other movies as well. Yeah. I don't think it's the budget that really lets this film down. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's do some informationals before we head into a thorough dissection of uh, this slab of uh, beefsteak. Look, it's set in 1950s. New Mexico, is it not? It's certainly set in the 1950s, isn't it? The one thing you would say about this film is it's a bit of a period drama. Yes. And they do that quite well. I think they do it remarkably well, really. Which is why I think, you know, the 19... Why I said it has a 1980s feel is, in the 1980s, there were all these kind of movies that harked back to... Like Porky's, modern, you mean? The modernist progressivism of the 1950s. You know, the idea that encapsulated earlier aren't... Are, Aren't uh, aren't tropes like Art Deco that suggested that mm. progress is going to be continuous and streamlined, and we're going to hurtle off into the future very smoothly, the, like the cars were, like the cars were in the nineteen fifties. Continued that, I think. You know, it, it was a time of utter confidence, really, in progress in science and in the cohesive and stable structure of society. And I think many eighties movies hark back to that. You know, maybe Flash Dancers, and maybe I'm talking nonsense here. No, the other one, Footloose, I think. Footloose kind of harked back to that, didn't it, really? And it kind of had that feel of a mid-80s movie in a certain sort of way for me. And Back to the Future as well, does yes, that, doesn't it? Yes, it yeah. does. It harks back all the way. It actually goes back to the 1950s. So the drive-by and the uh, high school basketball team and that sense, they start on a Friday evening when, and it's it's a sense that, uh, you know, the space of the 1950s, the social space of school and cut and drive-by, and it was all one continuous, occupiable space. There was no there was no alienation in society there at that point, was there? So the kids are having a ball of a time just moving from space to space within this small town. Small town. Yeah. This is like a word I've underlined. It, you know, it's all small town stuff, isn't it? In complete contrast to the name of the movie. Yes. It all takes place in this tiny, claustrophobic 1950s town. I mean, you'd think there would be some amazing, vast, open desert shots. You know? Oh, yeah. And maybe <laughs> contrasting that through tumbleweed to the, you know, to the concentration of humans, you know, vulnerable across this vast desert. You know, lights shining in the night, a small speck of light in this vast desert. You know, I think you could contrast those two ideas quite strongly. But he doesn't actually do that as a director, does he, at all? No, he steers well clear of anything that isn't kitchen sink drama-esque stuff. So no evocative empty lands- landscapes at all. No no awe-inspiring vistas at all. Now, I don't know whether you've got the... This is an Amazon Prime original. Is that right? An Amazon original? Well, it went to the... Is it the Sundance Film oh, the Festival? Sundance. You did say that, yeah. So what they do is, I think people, you know, directors, having made their movies, just pitch, roll, roll them up there in their VW camper van and pitch their movie and, and it goes to... to the first or the highest or the whatever bidder, and Amazon just bought this thing, I think, is what happened. Do you think, uh, that in those meetings, do you think they say, can we speak to the writers? 
And the director goes, yeah, okay, I'll have to go and get them. And then he goes to a different room and puts on a different hat. <laughs> well, he, he might have brought some hand puppets. You never know. <laughs> so I don't know whether you've got the description that was on Amazon about this movie, because I kept thinking about it yeah. whilst I was watching it. No. It says no. something about, and I'm going to paraphrase, I can't remember it exactly. It says something about two children discover a mysterious signal that settles over the town and blah, blah, blah. Well, children, if you count sure. a 22-year-old who's working as, a, as the local famous disc jockey that everybody in town knows. Exactly, yeah. It's a real stretch, isn't it? I mean, the girl, okay, she's a school, high school student or yeah. college student. I don't know. And times were innocent she, back then. So child, I guess, is, a, is an appropriate moniker for her. He's somewhat older. And I think they're just trying to, they're just trying to go for the Stranger Things vibe, aren't they? There, that's what they're doing. Yes, or but it's Tales from the what's that other one we watched? Tales of the TV series, Tales from the Loop, Tales, Tales from, from the Loop, that kind of adolescent vibe. But he's definitely not adolescent, you know. He's 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 a young man, and he he comes over as a jerk as well at the start. I don't. I, there are two things that I completely do not understand about this film. Is this is this uh, timeline accuracy? I think that's how cool people spoke in the 1950s, Richard. Oh my god, at the start of the movie, he speaks whilst with a cigarette in his mouth. Yeah. And it's just mumbled for the first like 3 minutes of the movie. You can't hear a I'm, word that he I'm says. Glad somebody was paying that much attention. <laughs> but no, he he's cool kind of jive. He goes on like a word jive for the first 5 minutes as he's walking from Beat poetry. You know, he's walking from set point to set point. He moves through the basketball court into the car park towards the drive-by. I'm not sure exactly. But what he does is he he gets the guy, the trombone player from the band, to pass the trombone to him. Yeah. Which the guy does. Yeah. He just does what he's told. And then he takes it upstairs and he hides it in a cupboard. Yeah. And I think we're given to understand that this is some kind of jape or joke that he's playing. Rather than impossibly cruel. <laughs> what are we to take from that? Other we're, we're to take from complete... this he's a hep cool cat. You know, this was, <laughs> I think this is authentic, you know, authentically, you know, the cool kids would be bullies in the 1950s. And she, although she seems to like him, she doesn't seem to care that he's doing that. She, she's along for the ride. She's an accomplice in that sense. But yeah. she's completely different. She's a very likable character, the girl. Obviously, I, I expect you would have a problem with this movie because of the depiction of a female interested <laughs> in science. And we're also watching her in her education as well, which you've said before. Well, no. I thought it was very balanced. You know, there's one male who was not really a studious type. And there's one female who was a good girl, you know, a scientific angel. This is the kind of, you know, positive, positive, affirmative, Affirmative action representation in movies that I approve of, Richard. But we've gone too far, actually. We need to rewind. Because the start of this movie, they do a thing, which I'm not... I guess there are three things I definitely don't understand about this movie. Okay. They do a little trick which sets this movie up in a certain way. And that is that they make out that this is actually a TV show, or part of a TV show. Yes, what was that about? Called the Paradox Theatre, which I think is supposed to be like the Twilight Zone. And it's, so it starts off on an old 1950s TV with, in black and white with, with scan With these lines. people doing their yeah. lines. And then we snap into full colour, you know, high definition, like movie. But with them, them continuing the same lines, i.e. it's a continuation. So are we to assume that this entire movie is just an episode of this a very dull television show. I don't. I don't think so. No, I don't know what because that's about. Part way through the film, at a certain point, at a random point, 
when she goes into somebody's house or through the door of somewhere and goes inside, it snaps back into TV mode. Yeah, and at the very end, it goes to TV mode or something like that at the the closing credits, doesn't it? So I don't know. I I just think it's a little clever trick that we're not supposed to read anything into. Or maybe it was going to be developed as something, but never did do doesn't add anything at all. It does not, apart from a certain amount of confusion. Yeah, it just takes away from. I mean, it's not supposed to be real. Then it's it, it's just a thing from the nineteen fifties they were watching on their TV. Like, You're absolutely completely right. Completely baffling. Yeah, but it made me think a lot about. I mean, it, it, like I say, it's obviously supposed to be about the Twilight Zone, isn't it? That's what it's evoking, the paradox theatre. But it actually reminded me more of the. Futurama skit on the Twilight Zone called Scary Door. <laughs> have you seen it? Have you no, seen those? No, I've not seen that, no. Because they have amazing little intros like Twilight Zone and like the Paradox Theatre with a the narrator. So my favourite, one of my favourites goes, you are entering the vicinity of an area adjacent to a location, the kind of place where there might be a monster or some kind of weird mirror. These are just examples. It could be something much better. Prepare to enter the Scary Door. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a take. It's a direct take on Twilight Zone, but more than that, just, you know, the 50s pulp sci-fi movies that were churned out in, in America at that time, you know. I think in the 1950s, was a very interesting time. Like I say, it was a time of extreme confidence and a continuation of the idea of the progression of the 20th century, uh, faith in science and society. But it was on the cusp of change, and there were, there were echoes... There were echoes of discontent, you know, and there was a, there was paranoia bubbling up from inside, you know, McCarthyism and the, the communist witch hunts. So there was there was death at the door, so to speak. In terms of evocative imagery, I thought they captured, you know, that the freeing simplicity of the 1950s and all the economic well-being that came with it. But of that society on a point on a turning point. But they didn't manage to bring the UFOs into that to represent that, I don't think. But we did get the idea of people looking to the future and looking to the future in a different way to what they would have done earlier in the 1950s or before. For example, at the start, it's kind of an in-joke. She mentions she's looking at a Science Digest magazine. She mentions three. She mentions three technologies from the future, you see. This is what I was going to say about this movie. Uh like so many times we've said this in this series, this isn't a science fiction movie at all. There's no sci-fi in it whatsoever, really. No, no. Except she, as you say, she gets out of her, whatever it is, her French horn case, bits of, what's the magazine called? Science Digest, I think. Practical Mechanics, isn't it? Ah, Practical Mechanics, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, she's got these clippings, doesn't she? She carries around because she's so keen on this stuff. She mentions three 1950s predictions of the future. The first is essentially mobile phones, although she doesn't represent it as that. Uh, the second is vacuum trains. And the third is self-driving cars. Yeah, no. So she starts with the self-driving cars, I think. Because yes. she's talking to the radio guy, of course, who she clearly adores. And she wants to hook him in and says they're going to have radio-controlled cars where you don't need a driver. And they're going to have loops in the road, according to um, the magazine article, apparently. She says that it's all going to it's going to start in 1974, and by 1990, all cars will be driverless like that. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the vacuum tube trains, which go at a very 
at a very at a, a clatteringly fast speed. Well, this is Hyperloop, isn't it? It is Hyperloop, this is Elon yeah. Musk's latest idea, as if he invented the idea of chains. So I think the scripting is intentional here. You know, it's looking at three things that either we do or don't have. We don't have these two things: self-driving cars and uh, vacuum vacuum. Well, we do trains. have. We do have. Vacuum we're we're approaching them. Elon Musk's invented them. <laughs> again, the he invented one, them again. The third invention, which is mobile phones, uh, he, they both agree is absolutely impossible. And it's the one thing that we do have today. So I think it's it's kind of a joke. But it's also the interesting thing about that is the way she, she describes it, because she describes having a screen on the back, yeah, which I think she calls a lilliput screen. Yes, a lilliput uh, that you'll be able to see your friend on the phone. A lilliput screen. I missed that, but that's a good that's a good name for it, isn't it? Because that that comes from uh, Gulliver's Travels, right? It does yeah, yeah. L- the little people of the, the little people. Yeah. Uh, so look, okay. So I think it's I, I think that kind of the the feel of the nineteen fifties and the fact that these two people are ahead of the curve and perhaps looking at the the future in a way that the nineteen fifties didn't, with a certain amount of doubt that it couldn't occur. Whereas I think all nineteen fifties people would just agree with the Jetsons that these three inventions will be arriving very soon. So there's that sense of a change, a, a, a sea change in opinions coming somewhere down the line. And that's quite good. It's got nothing to do with the movie, but I thought it was, it was quite... I think they captured a certain spirit quite well. It does, as you say, have nothing to do with the movie. This is a conversation that is maybe five minutes at, at most Yeah, uh, that happens in the first third of the movie. It is the only science that's in the whole thing, so I picked up on it and wrote loads of stuff down. But because that's all the science there was, that's it. That's the science fiction, and it's not even science fiction. Wait a minute, we we had uh, we had uh, flying saucers, didn't we? At some point. Spoiler alert! At the very end of the movie, yes, some flying saucers turn up, but we don't know anything about them or why they're there or what they're doing. It's just the end of the story, isn't it? That's it. It is. But yeah. Maybe there's a science fiction follow-on for this that someone would perhaps want to make and no one would want to watch. But it doesn't happen during the movie that we're watching. That's that's a certain. So anyway, so we've got Everett and Faye. Everett is the. Hep- oh, you know the names. I do. I like how you write down the names. Yeah. <laughs> Everett is the hep cool cat boy about town who's a local disc jockey, and Faye is the adorable wide-eyed high school science enthusiast. No, listen. Uh, I want to switchboard, about- a switchboard operator in her free time or I was, at night. I, I, or I was going to say that. Yeah, she's supposed to be a, like a high school kid. And yet she spends her evenings, she takes over a shift on the the town switchboard. Maybe that wasn't so unusual, you know, working 20 hours a week back then. Maybe it wasn't. I'm not sure. One of the things about this movie is it felt a bit like a TV movie, a made-for-TV movie, which I suppose on Amazon you might argue it kind of is. But on a TV movie, there would be a lot more melodrama. Like, you know, those two characters would have a proper love interest. And they yeah. might even have sex at some point. Sure. And yeah. there would be a frisson of, you know, unmarried sex, maybe she's underage, all of this stuff would be going on. But there's absolutely none of that. There's not even really a suggestion that they're anything more than platonic friends. I mean, they're very chummy, but it's not even hinted at, really. I found it really, it's a really sterile story. It's like a story for kids, but that's to say, as if kids would put up with something as dull as this, which I'm sure they wouldn't. They wouldn't, no. It's kind of like James Dean with all with all his posturing and attitudinizing taken out really like i don't know what you're supposed to think about everett you know i was supposed to be looking at him with with modern eyes and thinking you know why is he talking like this and why is he channeling buddy holly in in such a repulsive manner kind of thing 
Well, why is he being such a bully to everybody? Are we supposed to? Is he uh, anti-hero? Are we, are we, how are we supposed to view him? I, I'm, I, this, I wasn't sure about the characterization, to be honest with you. Mystifying. No, so I guess well, nobody I, knows. Like I say, I, th- I think you're supposed to think he's a jerk. Right. That's what the movie is trying to tell you at the start, isn't it? You said that that's the way people might have been. But modern audiences looking at this are not going to know those cultural cues anyway, are they? No, no. Or is this a movie made for people old enough to remember the 50s? I doubt it. I don't think so. No, no, no. I, I imagine it's it's squarely made for the late adolescent set and the early, you know, the uh, young adults kind of stuff. But look, okay, in Wikipedia it says it's loosely based on two events. The Foss Lake Disappearance. And also the Keckersburg incident, Pennsylvania, 1965. The Coxburg incident. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't read my own writing. Neither well, of which are very famous. I was going to say, that information would have made this film a lot more interesting. But they didn't say that at the start, did they? They didn't say, I don't well, remember it. Saying. Wait till I tell you what the Foss Lake disappearance is actually about. It's about, in 2013, they discovered two cars from the 1950s. Uh, or 1970s rather, uh, and when they were dredging a lake, and they were each full of three skeletons. That's it, you know. Uh, so not very interesting, uh, and not very relevant. And is it the Fexburg or the Kexburg or the Coxburg? I can't remember, read my own writing. Please investigate Wikipedia yourselves, guys, on this movie. <laughs> but uh, that's to do with like fireballs in the sky. So you know, like a potential UFO sighting. I'm, I'm not sure what. How it resolves any of these, either of these two events in any way. Well, it doesn't. You know, it's just loosely based on these. So. Very so loosely. Know. Come on, there's no connection at all between those things. I mean, Molly and Skulder would do better with this, I think. Molly and Skulder. That's what they're trying to go for in a, in a way as well, isn't it? These, yeah. These, uh, these yeah. two, like in a Molly and Skulder spent whole seasons of will they or won't they have sex with one another these two spend just one movie with barely any indication that there's a frisson between them I mean she obviously fancies him because he's kind of cool so I guess at this point we have to head towards Area 51 and Roswell don't we well that's what I thought it was channeling yeah I thought it was all about New Mexico sort of Roswell era ufology stuff so just remind uh, our younger viewers what is Roswell all about Oh, what, you mean people who were too young to have lived through Roswell? Is that what you're trying to say? We were of a generation that knew about the X-Files and that kind of thing, but I, I'm not sure these things are highly popularised these days. So the Roswell incident was an occurrence of a UFO myth, a legend really, an urban legend that occurred in the 1950s, where some wreckage was found in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, after people probably have been reporting lights in the sky like they often do anyway. I think it was the... U.S. Army, wasn't it, or Air Force, or someone was saying that this was a weather balloon, which people apparently found unconvincing, despite the fact that it plainly was a weather balloon. Hence, a legend grew up around the Roswell story ah, that okay. they had captured like aliens. A, a Russian satellite or an American satellite? I guess so. But the, the story was that they captured aliens alive in a crashed ship and were keeping them, took them to Area 51 in Nevada, where they actually test uh, stealth fighters and stuff. And that's, of course, been in the popular consciousness 14 times type stuff ever since. I want to get back, though, to those Practical Mechanics and Science Digest articles. Right. Just like you were suggesting that this might be based on a true story. Yeah. I really hope that 
those articles were real. He had actually looked up 1950s articles and found that they were predicting these things, which I'm sure they were predicting similar things. You know, we all, we all know that they were expecting us to be wearing Baker file by now and having a robot in the house. But if they weren't real, then it feels, again, just really cheap and short-changey, doesn't it? It just He just wrote that stuff. It wasn't real. He just wrote that stuff to, like, you know, ricochet on a riff of what exists today and what we think is the most obvious, the most easily invented thing a mobile phone. In reflection, they thought was the most difficult thing to view as a, as a, as a potentially viable invention, you see. You're telling me that they weren't real articles that he was citing. Uh, I'm not telling that. I'm guessing that, but I, I think it's it's it's. I think it's fair to say that it most likely was written written just you know inventively rather than rather than researched backwards. Oh, that is disappointing. Hmm. I was really hoping because I mean you know we're nearly at driverless cars, right? And embedding stuff in the highways. I actually think we're some way off driverless cars, though, aren't we? Really? Not on the I'm not on the freeway. You know the the Teslas can already do it. Yeah. And if you were prepared to embed technology some infrastructure onto the highways you could do it re- really easily imagine you could just get trucks all following signals and stuff very close yeah. together and stuff like that well it's not far away i don't think why That's do you think it's away. far away i just think the idea of a fully autonomous self-driving vehicle is is you know maybe 10 years away i'd imagine that's not that long though true but i also wanted to fly and we're, we're quite some way off that well they are testing out little drones aren't they that can carry people so maybe not so far off a flying Uber. Although you you don't believe in drones full stop because you don't think they, they can fly. Hey. That's what you said. You said it would be impossible for that drone to have flown when we were watching Mute. Oh, oh yes. Yes, I did say that. Well, maybe I take that back. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Well, yeah. So I don't think they're three legitimate articles from Practical Mechanics, whatever the magazine series was. Well, that deals with uh, driverless cars and telephones with Lilliput screens. What about Elon Musk's Hyperloop, Paul? Oh, you want to debate this? Well, I I think we've discussed this at at length previously in in, in other channels. I I know you're firmly, resolutely of the opinion that that, uh, this is unachievable. If it were achievable, it would be a horrific health and safety issue to have it running. I don't know, really. I think it is achievable, provided that he can think of like a second chamber around it, or something, or or you know, when it when it when when the penetration of the vacuum seal occurs, then you know there are doors every five every fifty meters to close down immediately, instantaneously, to stop you know whatever kind of hyper acceleration would be occurring when one side of the train. The, when it, the atmosphere on one side of the train gets punctured and starts to fill up, and the other side remains a vacuum, you know. So, but I, I guess you're going to launch into this, Richard. What do you think? Is it achievable? The proposal is that for hundreds of miles across the country, you build <laughs> a three meter diameter vacuum, heavy gauge steel vacuum tube, yeah, on stilts with no with no kind of uh, interlocking interlocking uh, separations of sections so if one if one part of it bursts it just fills up with air does it not yes extremely quickly explosively you might say and if there's a train between the air filling up and where the air wants to go that train will be accelerated at almost approaching incredi- the speed of sound I should imagine, <laughs> incredible yes. velocities and will probably rip into whatever 
whatever levitating structure was 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 levitating it I, I imagine so it would tear itself up and everybody would be made meat chowder so I mean, the obvious solution here is to have like you know drop down sealable doors when when pressure is detected then you know doors shut down immediately but what if they shut down in front of a 500 mile an hour train <laughs> it's the next problem so I mean, there are ways around it, I think, to make it safer, but as it stands, I don't think it's a workable proposition, is it? The cost would be astronomical for in- engineering such a thing. Yeah. And think about the difficulty we have in just building an ordinary train line, a new one, uh, up and down the country. Imagine if we were instead trying to build three-metre diameter vacuum tube, and you need two of them, I, I guess, or you'd sharply limit the capacity of the network, wouldn't you? There is another idea for evacuated tube transport that's not really hyperloop but it uses gravity tubes so you connect oh wow two places on the earth together in kind of i don't i was going to say parabola but maybe it's It's hyperbola possibly yeah or a cycloid or something but anyway the idea is if you evacuate the tube and you step into it at the top and let yourself just fall down you'll fall down through the tube and then you'll with the speed that you pick up and the lack of air resistance, you'll then go up the other side. That's right. And you'll wind up at the surface, at the destination, just as you come to rest. You'll be able to step off, as it were. That's a lovely uh, idea, isn't it? I think it takes... I think because of orbital mechanics and gravity, it takes... Is it 47 minutes to anywhere on the, on the to Earth? To anywhere in the world, yeah. 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 I mean, here we get to the idea of why doesn't transport ever change, you know? A simple thing would be, instead of buses and cars and bicycles, why not just a ski lift on every major intersection, but running horizontally, you know? You just hold on and move up there on the ski lift kind of thing. Horizontal ski lifts. I mean, is this related p- to your idea of having... Slow down. Slow down. Uh, for people with long hair and getting tangled in the gears, it might be a problem, I admit, you know, late at night when they're drunk and there's no policeman to come and press stop on the machinery. But in, basically, you know, why not little ski lifts? One of the reasons is that ski lifts are much harder than, say, skiing. <laughs> and there's well, enormous pressure okay. on you to get it right, aren't there? Isn't there? Because... If we're talking about transportation of the future here, there's huge amounts to unpack on, isn't there? But gauge, the fundamental idea, I think, here is gauge. I mean, every transportation system has a working gauge, does it not? It does, yes. And a load gauge. And I'm going to extend that to infrastructural gauge. Now, what's infrastructural gauge, you may say, Paul? Paul. Well, I mean, Richard, what's the width of train tracks in the UK? Any ideas? Don't recall. No. Standard gauge. It's about four foot eleven or four foot seven, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, if you want to go imperial, yeah. And it does have <laughs> so that has implications for the for the height and width of bridges, does it not, etc. No, it doesn't. And oh. I've I've worked this out myself. Oh, go on. People often say how much better the trains are on the continent, particularly say Switzerland. Yeah. Where they're double decker and stuff. I assumed that that was because... Of working gauge. I I thought that it was because of the track gauge that on the continent, freed from the historical ramifications of having invented the railway, they had been able to set a wider, more more useful gauge on the continent. Good old legacy architecture, yeah. But that's not true. In Switzerland, and I think most of Europe, if not all of Europe, everyone uses standard gauge, our gauge. Yeah. Everyone uses it. But the difference is what you described, the loading gauge. Load well, gauge. The loading gauge isn't the width of the track. It's the width of the stuff on the top, uh, you know, the carriages, how wide and tall they are. 
once you set that standard and built all of your tunnels and over overpasses and stuff. Any change often implies a complete rebuild, doesn't it? Of yes. all the surrounding infrastructure. Well, I'm going to extend here a little bit to infrastructural gauge, okay? And that's the idea, like, if you've got carriages, you know, if you've got if you've got cargo carriages of a certain width, uh, then, of course, that in- indicates your, your tetra pack or your pallets are going to be a certain size also. Figures, yeah? Which means, therefore, that loading bays in factories and industrial units are all kind of configured either to lorry sizes or train sizes. It's incredible. And I'm going to call this infrastructural gauge. The gauge, not in the railway itself, but the implications of those, the, the working and load gauge that has on the ramifications of design throughout the larger transportation and manufacturing system, you see. And that's why railways never change, because once you set up those gauges, you're talking about mammoth changes and investment to, to, to you know, to, to redesign everything and rebuild everything so it fits the new mold kind of thing. Is that not, is that a major reason why train, train hasn't evolved? Yeah, and it's, it's in, in like fashion, modern day plant and machinery is all designed so that it can be dismantled and packed into containers. Into containers, Everything yeah. has yeah. to fit into a standard size shipping container. That's Everything right, yeah. in the world nowadays, basically. Which I think is designed to be able to transport it on standard gauge, is it not? True, yeah. You see, so even our shipping and our containers are defined by by the disrupting technology railway that came and disrupted canals, you know. So what we're saying here, if we're looking in terms of Californian ideas of disruption, the new railway has to be so powerful and so disruptive that it would benefit us to rip up all old factories and everything, all the infrastructural gauge one, coined the phrase I'm coining just for this, this episode, we'd have to rip everything up and we would still benefit and that's, I, you know, I don't think the Hyperloop is that much of a disruptor, is it? It's not going to be that much more of a game winner than the, than the existing train system. So I can't really ever see our trains evolving further. Well, I think we sorted transports out. Well, no, we haven't. We haven't. <laughs> what about London's inner city transport problem? I, I, look, I think we've discussed this before. I've got three great solutions. The first what? is lazy rivers. We need a system of lazy rivers. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, who doesn't like a water park? Yes, yes. Uh, who wouldn't like slipping on a wetsuit at 8.20 in the morning, coming from Islington, down a lazy river, into the city of London, in warm, bubbly, sauna hot water, <laughs> at a pleasant speed of seven and a half miles an hour? It's not particularly slow compared to traffic in London. Hmm. I mean, open waterways in cities do tend to have the qualities you described when walking to an out-of-town retail park, don't they? <laughs> Look, have you seen the wild water park in, in, in Dubai? It's not depressing at all, Richard. It would be depressing if people had pushed shopping carts into it and dead dogs <laughs> were in it. Uh, imagine the school run. All the, oh, God, there's kids in front. Uh, the radio, local radio stations... You know, the, a large amount of piss in the water. Children are just getting out now. Well, I'm glad you led with the lazy river idea up front because I think things can only get better from here, can't they? Okay, so my second idea was a clever... They have this in the, in Amsterdam already, or sorry, in Norway, I think, where you put your, you're on a bicycle, and you come to a hill, and you put your foot in this like little electric ah. bogey that's set inside the grass to, to the curb, and it drags you up the hill kind of thing. Yes, I've seen that. I'd have a yeah. similar idea, you know, like... Um, have you ever built bonfires as a child, Richard? 
As a child, I built a bonfire, yes. And you would put in like a, a, an initial structure that looked a bit like an electric pylon before you laid the wood around it, yeah? A, a very tall kind of base pole kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I guess there's something odd about the fact that what ends up looking like a random pile of rubbish has to start with a distinct structural yeah. kind of blueprint. Okay. But that structural blueprint, I would have these little like little wooden structures dotted around town, and, the, uh, and these would be points of elevation. So you'd, you'd hop in there, and there'd be some lift mechanism, and you'd go 25 metres on your bicycle. And then, of course, the roads coming up from the top of this, uh, this, this, uh, this elevated area would be slightly sloping at maybe, you know, 0.75 degrees. So you could technically freewheel everywhere until you come to the next hoisting post. So there were little, little 25-metre mountains all around town with, you know, with roads leading up to them. I think it would be. So you could go downhill all the way, basically. Yeah, modern modern towers of Babylon, but bicycle based. Yeah. I should say, by the way, for our three international listeners, <laughs> that a, a bonfire is a celebratory fo- garbage fire that we build to celebrate the capture and killing of a Catholic terrorist. Yes, yes. My third idea, of course, is the most, is, I think it's the most workable one, which is the underground walk, uh, walk, walkways. A travelator. Yeah, the underground travelators. Now, the problem here is the ch- is you know the inner one is five miles an hour, the outer one is fifteen miles an hour. I think you need to explain that what we're talking about here is a a wide boulevard of airport travelators. Yeah, going at different speeds. speeds yeah, hmm. yeah, a wide boulevard of airport travelators going extending for miles and under the existing city, going at different differing speeds, and some sort of mechanism to transition between those speeds very smoothly so that grannies don't fall flat on the bumps. Apparently, the airport in Paris has this. It has gradated speed changes between its travelator sections and does it quite successfully. So the concept is proven. The concept is proven, yeah. yeah. So I think, and this, of course, 15 miles an hour is, 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 is a great old speed at any city, isn't it, really? So, and cheap. It's kind of like my ski lift idea taking a bit further, isn't it, really? So I'm going to take the credit for that one, too. So these would all have been better things to put in the movie than the three that she picked out. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, shall we talk about this movie? I mean, what happens is uh, weird noises start coming through the radio and start coming through the switchboard. That's it, really. Yeah, isn't she, it? she she sits down at a switchboard operated job, and they hear a noise, which to me just sounds like somebody's washing machine. <laughs> she thinks I think there might be a power cut as well, but she thinks it's so notable that she has to call her friend Everett at who is Manning WOTW radio station or something. Yeah. Now he's. I think there's another riff, cultural riff that they're 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 trying to point out here, which is he's doing a show a bit like. Have you ever heard Coast to Coast with Art Bell? I haven't. No, no. It's a kind of late night call in show that used to. I mean, Art Bell is passed away now. Oh, he's dead. I don't know why people use that euphemism. But uh, Art Bell uh, used to do this late night call in show, which was often around paranormal. And also conspiracy theory type yeah. ideas, yeah. but you get these callers calling in, and you can hear some of them, some recordings from it online. It's quite interesting and it's quite relaxing. You can imagine people falling asleep to it. But there was one famous one, for instance, where a guy called Mel uh, calls in about a hole that he's got in on his property in the states. This hole, as far as he can tell, has no bottom. You know, they've tried dropping things into it and feeding line into it, and they never come to the end. And oh, the whole town just throws its garbage in there, he says. This story develops and stuff. There's stories like that 
That's a good story. It is a good story. It's good. It's good listening. It's immediately scary, isn't it? Whereas this it movie is. wasn't scary. <laughs> no, no, that this movie is incredibly uh, not scary. <laughs> just straightforward, isn't it? Everything is just, yeah. you know, this thing happens and this thing happens. But it's a romance that never happens. A romance that doesn't happen. No sex. No real frisson of attraction. He plays this sound to his audience, and he asks people to call in if they can identify what this is. It's, yeah, and no one says yes. It's a, it's a washing machine. Somebody calls in and says, <laughs> "Yeah, I recognise it because I was working in this government thing, and I think it's a Roswell reference, isn't it?" And he starts yes. talking about what he was. This doing. is Billy. This is Billy. Now, uh, there's several things that uh, they fill out Billy's situation over the phone. Over the call-in, uh, he's an ethnic minority because they were viewed as more disposable and less believable if they're ever going to blab about what happened. And, uh, he's got a lung condition because of working there, presumably indication of radioactive activity within the area that he's working. So they're filling out a little bit, uh, but still, you know, I mean, what else is there to say? You know, it's just confirming there's a weird noise. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we require some more depth, don't we, than what this movie provides. She has been toying with this open reel cassette recorder that she's got from the beginning of the movie that Everett's been helping her with. And he was showing her how to interview people. And that was quite an engaging bit, I thought. Uh, but I, I know this is the second movie where we've experienced an open reel tape recorder. It is. But not CB radio. Now, CB Radio's big in Stranger Things, which I think this is riding on the back of somehow, isn't it? Yes. Now, CB Radio, of course, CB Radio, of course you say Breaker Breaker. Breaker Breaker, one four for a copy, come on. And the cute thing about this, this, this the innocent, innocent uh, young teenage girl is that she thinks it's Bacon Bacon. Bacon Bacon. Yeah, but she heard that in a war movie. It wasn't on, uh, on CB Radio. Yeah, and he was particularly not perceptive. You know, he wasn't really listening to his potential girlfriend. She was asking him about two or three times, and he just wasn't wasn't going to. And he's he works in radio himself, so you're thinking no. So uh, yeah, Everett, not the most uh, not most attentive of friends or potential boyfriends, I don't think. They go and interview a lady, and I'm not sure why or how they found out. I hope you were asleep for this bit as well. But they go and interview this old lady who also has something story to tell about this noise and about these aliens. And I think her, was it her son who disappeared that she was talking about? Can I just stop you one second? Okay, so on the, on the, on the, on the basis of Billy's call, they go and steal tapes from the library, don't they? Or fade us. They eventually do go and steal tapes, yeah. Which indicate what? More strange noises? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so more confirmation of strange noises. Okay, let's get back to the old lady. So her son has been disappeared, you're saying, yeah? Disappe- I think that was right. She claimed that her son had vanished. Do you know, I, I can barely remember, and I have so little concern. I just don't care what happened. Because let's cut to the chase again. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, my one question I've written down here is, is this ever going to build to a coherent, cohesive whole? And the answer is no. You know, Billy's lung condition, the fact he's an ethnic minority, her disappeared son, the old woman, it doesn't build to anything apart from some strange noises. All that happens, eventually, is they go out into the field at night with a tape recorder, and they see UFOs in the sky. And the next thing you know, the tape recorder is on the ground in a pile of ash. Was I reading that right? No, I think you're right, yeah. yeah. So what, they'd been what burnt up? Yeah. But the tape recorder was fine. And so they disappeared, people, now. Yeah. That was it. That's the end. End of movie. <laughs> so, so make of it what you will. Maybe you know he was he was he was attempting some sort of narrative dissonance. I.e., I'm I'm just going to build this up to make no sense whatsoever, and for it to be completely flat. 
I don't know. Was, was he exper- experience, experimenting like David Lynch did with rabbits? I don't know. I mean, it's frustrating, isn't it? There was a lot of cigarette smoking going on in this film as well. It's yeah. kind of a very 1950s thing, obviously, but it hurt my lungs to watch it. Yeah, there's a whole James Dean thing going on somewhere in the background, but to what effect or to what for what reason, I'm not sure, really. I think we're going to have to do scores, aren't we? We are, yes, yes. Now, what do we traditionally start with at this point? Let's start with the science. Ooh, uh, shall I go? Well, well, let's say, you know, for references to science, science digest and what was it? Uh, mechanics, mechanics weekly. I can't remember what it's called. Practical now. mechanics. Practical it? mechanics and those little tidbits. Uh, the use, the effective use of a telephonist exchange network. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say, really. There's nothing to say, is there, too? I'm sorry. If those articles from Science Digest's Practical Mechanics are real, and he was quoting them to show what they thought might happen as a, a real yeah. piece of history, then, then it gets a six. Wow. If not, and he just invented them by writing about things that have nearly happened here, then it gets a two, yeah. Okay, I forgot. There's a tape recorder that's very well used, too. Three. I'm going to score it a three. <laughs> okay, so we made short shrift of that. How about the acting? Do you know, I, I think it was passable, I think. Particularly from the young female protagonist who played Faye. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She was likeable. I think we, need, we needed to get behind somebody here. The hero, anti-hero nature of the other protagonist, uh, what was he called? Everett? I, I don't know what was that about. It was, it was confusing, but I don't think that's the actor's problem. Yeah, I'm going to say a six. A creditable and performative six. I'll give it a six as well. I agree with those comments. I don't think... I don't think they can be blamed for this. <laughs> no, no, they did a good job. But it's a cast of two, basically, isn't it? That's yeah. all, yeah. really. I tell you what, why was this a movie? I don't. It could know. have been done as a radio production, couldn't it? It could. It would have made. It would have made a better radio production, I think, because your imagination can take you so much further with radio, can't it? So, and it is difficult. Don't forget for two actors to carry that much credit where credit is due. So I'm going to give a seven for the acting. Finally, actually, having considered everything, I'll go six point five. Okay. Now, I mean, one thing that this film does well. Let's give it a good point here. It does evoke, as you said, the 1950s very successfully. I think. Well, I was going to give it an up mark at the end because of that. Well, let's look at the special effects and the action. Oh, well, I'm sorry. We got a 1950s UFO at the end, rendered. In you know modern style, tolerably, we got the whole stack of like a like a Japanese warrior's head headgear is how I imagine UFOs, and that's how it's realised. You know, there's several levels of it, kind of thing. It was very close encounters of the third kind. It was, yeah, yeah. So you know, it it looked like a Japanese war helmet, essentially, or you know, a bit like not Space Invader, but maybe Defender or something like that. So there was that, and that was it, really. So I'm, I'm going to have to say a two again. I'm sorry. I don't want to be so swinging, but... Well, it was very sparse. I mean, there was only one special effects scene, I think. And it was competent enough. I mean, I'll give it a four. A four. Just, oh. you know, hardly any of it. And didn't really... Didn't add anything to the plot. I mean, if on a radio drama they said, and that was the last time we heard of them, and here's their tape recording, that would have been much better. Fine, yeah, yeah. 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 So finally, I think the script and dialogue and what went. Now, on the story, here's a thing. There were so many things that, well, I say so many. Like, there were things that just didn't pay off that 
seemed significant, but were never closed out. That's right. You know, Billy's lung condition, for instance, you know, what, what, is, what is that doing in there? At the start of the movie, during the whole basketball game thing that they were... Yeah. They kept making a big play of the idea that a squirrel or a chipmunk had chewed through a wire. That's right, yeah. About five or six characters mention it. And at one point, Everett goes to the... We're all going to investigate it, aren't they? Yeah, there's a group of guys trying to fix something. And they're all talking about a squirrel or a chipmunk. They're talking about another incident, a prior incident, where a chipmunk had chewed through a wire. And I think they're assuming this has happened again or something. And they get him up there, not knowing whether he's the guy that they wanted or not or something. But outside, people are mentioning this. Yes. But it never comes up again. (laughs) Are we to assume that it's not actually chipmunks, but aliens doing this? Or maybe it's not aliens, but chipmunks. <laughs> with Yeah, with some great flight technology. I mean, look, well, yeah, it's, it's all unresolved, isn't it? You know, I have to give an upmark here for the wonderfully evocative rendering of the 1950s. I, I, it did feel... Can you pin that on the story, though? Is that a story? I can't, but I've got, to, I've got to upmark it somewhere, so I'm going to put it here. You know, this freeing simplicity of the confident 1950s where, le- you know, school just leaked into the parking lot and the parking lot just leaked. You wandered through there into, into the into the drive-by. That sense that the occupants that they had of their communities then, I thought was very well captured, that confidence, glowing confidence of the 50s. So I like that. So I'm going to have to score this a four plus one for, for just the general ambiance. I'm going to score it a five, finally, for script. I can't be that generous. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go two. I think for the script. It's just, you know, what happens? They hear a noise. They don't do anything with the noise. Someone tells them there may be aliens, and then they go and see aliens in a field, and they get abducted. Was it that dull for you, Richard? Very dull. It's in the overall score that I'm going to uptick it for its 1950s evocative. Oh, that's probably a sensible option. Yeah, yeah. So I'm therefore going to give it a four. Just below the would recommend possibly watching. I'm going to give it a uh, a five. Wow. Okay. Well, put this on if you're feeling sleepy and you want to see. It's right doing. on the uncomfortable fence of should watch or should not watch. In my mind, five isn't a recommend for me. I would rather watch an episode of Scary Door. Yeah. Yeah. You're taking a vacation from normality. The setting. A weird motel where the bed is stained with mystery. <laughs> and there's also some mystery floating in the pool. Your keycard may not open the exercise room because someone smeared mystery on the lock. <laughs> but it will open the scary door. Did you write those yourself, Richard? Are you, are you quoting them verbatim? I'm quoting them verbatim from uh, Futurama. Wow. I think there's a scary door sequence in every season of Futurama. And they're all uh, pretty funny. Right, so in, in summary, uh, this, The Vast of Night, this movie, what we have just gone watched uh, from 2019, variable results, really. Uh, if you like stories, don't watch this. If you like 1950s Americana, do watch it. That's really all I have to say about it. Yeah, it should be called The Smallness of Towns. <laughs> Indeed. Well, which brings us to the, to the next thing to say, Richard, which is uh, what on earth are we watching next week? And as you know, because I chose this one, it falls to you to choose. We are in the lap of the gods here. Oh, Do you I have see. a movie to suggest? I don't have a movie to suggest, should I? Well, it's your turn, isn't it? Oh. Is that not, is that not the way things have gone since yeah. time immemorial? Well, I don't. I don't have anything to suggest, Richard. The movie I'm going to suggest is Io. 
2019 movie available on Netflix. How do you spell it? I-O. I-O. And what's the other choice? This is the only choice, because you didn't come up with one. Richard, I think watching Sputnik has turned you into some sort of autocrat. <laughs> this is uh, this is a commandment direct from. I'm not sure the influence has been direct positive. from central command from, from a perspective of representative democracy. Listen, if you want me to present two options, you need to give me some time and not spring on me <laughs> during the podcast that you haven't thought of any film at all. A lack of professionalism to do my own job. Yeah, well, that's a fair point, I imagine. I'll take that on board, Richard. Okay, so it's I.O. from 2001, 2000, yes, last year. 2019, yeah. Wow, okay. 2000 last year. Okay, and what's it briefly about, sir? A young scientist searches for a way to save a dying Earth. She wow. finds a connection with a man who's racing to catch the last shuttle off the planet. Oh! <laughs> Abandon all souls, ye who enter here. Okay, so there's people deserting it like ships from a, like rats from a ship, is there? This sounds reassuringly dystopian. Good. Good. Okay, well, uh, I'll try to get excited by it later when I find out what it's about. I await your arousal, as so often. <laughs> <laughs> right, until next week. It's goodbye from him. And it's goodbye from him. Okay, and uh, is there some music? I hope so, Paul. It's your job. In three, two, and one. Thank you.